The scripture reading today continues in 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 28, starting in verse 1. 1 Samuel, chapter 28, starting in verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And she said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Ashish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Ashish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the armies of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Beyond, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for me, for my life, to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. Then the woman saw Samuel. She cried with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what shall I do? And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. And the Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to you to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you might have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. And they arose and went away that night. 
So in the reading of God's word, for those of you with children ages three years old to kindergarten, they are now dismissed to Little Landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. Let's pray together and seek God's help as we turn to this wonderful passage of scripture read before us. Father, we thank you for 1 Samuel 28 and for all that you'll show us here. We thank you for the glimpses of the gospel that we'll see here and we thank you for the preciousness of your word and the absolute certainty of all that you have said will come to pass. Improve the ability that you give to us to love and serve you as you deserve and obey your every command and to recognize how Treasonous are the impulses inside each of us to run away from you, reject you, and blame you for it. Thank you for Christ who saves us from your wrath and from ourselves. I pray that you would pour out your blessing on all those watching by live stream in other rooms in the building, here in this room, and the children as they receive the word of God especially prepared for their strengthening salvation and enjoyment. Guide us now as you are guiding and blessing churches in our area as men from our body are away from us and proclaiming the word of God in other settings today. Bless them as they take up the sacred task of preaching for God's beloved people. To the advance and the praise of God's beloved glory, I pray all these things. Amen. The main point of the book of 1 Samuel can be seen right here in this chapter. I think the book of 1 Samuel was written to show us on the one hand how precious is the word of God and the people who obey it, even if flawed and with sin and with need for forgiveness like David. And by contrast, we see Saul who had the word of God and all the blessings and mercies of God and yet refused to obey the word of God, not once, not for a season, but for his entire life and ministry. We see David from the beginning as a young shepherd boy rising to a great king about to take his throne. At this time in 1 Samuel 28, he's leading his small kingdom of 600 men and their families in Ziklag, a city given to him by God right in the midst of his enemies, and yet he knows peace, he knows the word of God, he knows fellowship with God and the favor of God, and others are gathering themselves around him as their king. Yet we see the demise and the decline of Saul in this very passage. We see how he has rejected the word of God and persists in rejecting it. He doesn't just lack faith, he has denied God and we'll see he's even going to accuse God in this passage. But to persist in rejecting God all the days of your life is ultimately to have God withdraw himself from you. Wherever God has shown himself to you, whatever ways you have tasted of the heavenly gift, whatever ways you have seen the powers of heaven, whatever ways you've experienced some goodness, if you choose by sin's rebellion to reject God, he will not be mocked. And he shows here how he withdraws himself from Saul. All those who are truly his are held and preserved and secure for eternity. But those who have never trusted in Christ yet only 
demonstrated an outward image of trusting in Christ. Have a warning spoken to them through this passage. Repent and flee to Christ. So the Apostle Paul writes, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2, 11-13. Paul, Saul doesn't just lack faith. That's where we all struggle. My faith is weak, Lord. I believe. Help my unbelief. Saul doesn't just lack faith. He's made a life of denying God. Saul's heart is filled with fear at the rise of the Philistines, the mighty army that neither he nor the Israelites nor David have removed, and a people have gathered the Philistines to oppose Saul and to oppose the Israelites. David and his band of 600 men are finding refuge right inside the Philistines because David is playing the double agent, remember? David is going out and making raids in southern Israel, not against the Israelites, but against tribes who should have been removed long before. So he has safety even under the watchful eye of the Philistines, and we'll find out in the next chapter whether he actually fights with the Philistines or ultimately with the Israelites. Tune in for next week. Though the Philistines are amassing at Israel's border, Saul looks at that and he's terrified. In fact, the words here in the original language are that he is gripped with terror. He is fearful and anxious and gripped with the horror that he and the Israelites might be overtaken by the Philistines, a feeling you can imagine well. Remember that Samuel the prophet has died. And what does that mean? It means that there's no prophet speaking for God that anyone can turn to nationally for Israel. And remember that Saul, in his infinite idiocy, killed all the priests and prophets who were following Samuel in the village of Nob. So mediums, diviners... Those who engage in pagan, occultic witch and wizard practices have grown in Israel and in the surrounding pagan nations. The pagan nations seem to get help from witches and wizards and necromancers and diviners. Why don't we as well? So Moses wrote well in Deuteronomy 18, a century before, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess. Listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 14. God abominates the consulting and the hearing from anyone who claims to give guidance and wisdom besides him. Going to someone else and seeking wisdom and guidance for life other than God angers God rightly, for he is the speaking God and has said, follow me, obey me, be strengthened and made wise by me, learn from me, don't turn to anyone else. But that's not the only reason 
God abominates talking to the dead. God is the God of life. He's the living God. His name means I exist, I am. I am the source of all life. I rule over the living and the dead. And anyone who turns to the dead for wisdom which I alone give, says the living God, has not only insulted and dishonored me, but has pursued the very opposite of the way that I lead and give life. There are other gods. There are other voices. And all of them begin in death and lead to death. It's quite simple. We are followers of the living God and we address him, speak to him and hear from him. The God who, though dying on the cross, rose from the dead and we speak to him and he hears his, hears his people talk to him and he knows our hearts even now. Or we speak to other gods who are from the dead and lead to death. Why did Deuteronomy 18 and Moses' writing say that listening to a medium or a charmer or a sorcerer or a diviner is akin to offering your son or daughter as a sacrifice? There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Why such an unspeakably ugly statement beginning the paragraph about not listening to the dead? The answer is this, the tax that the gods which are no gods charge for their services is innocent life. The false gods are cruel masters exacting the most precious masterpieces of God we have, infants, as a tax for their seductive and coveted lies. For instance, in our nation at this time, we have not understood how very wicked the practice of abortion is until we ask, to what God are these infant children being sacrificed? This chapter, as I began, is the climax and even the summary, in some sense, of the entire message of the book of 1 Samuel. Oh, there's more to come. A few more chapters. But, but it's, it's like a suspension bridge. It's like twin towers upholding the entire span of, the, of a suspension bridge, like the Mackinac Bridge. A four-mile-long bridge, and then these, these massive towers that aren't quite at either end, but they suspend both on the right and the left, and everything in between them in this glorious, beautiful architectural masterpiece of engineering. This chapter is the second tower. Your wheels have hummed long enough now that you're coming under the second tower. This chapter on Saul's demise and the depths of sin that we observe in Saul here in 1 Samuel 28 is a milestone showing, by contrast, that God wants us to be like David and like Abigail. And he says, don't follow the path that you see Saul following here. In this chapter, I see two severe mercies and a sure hope. Two severe mercies and a sure hope. I want to show them to you as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table. 
These, these two severe mercies might be thought of as warnings, but I call them severe mercies because they are warnings. Look at Saul, don't do what he's doing. But inside each of the warnings is a little delicious inner mercy. It's like you pick the right piece of chocolate out of the box of chocolates. So I call them severe mercies. They're mercy wrapped in a warning. Look at the first one. Here it is. Cherish God by hunting joyful obedience in God's word. Cherish God by hunting joyful obedience in God's word. The warning here is that Saul did not hunt down joyful obedience in God all his life. He hunted down everybody who he thought was opposing him. That's what he hunted. He hunted down his fame and power and glory by seeking to kill David. With every effort, Saul hunted David. David, all the while, by contrast, is not hunting Saul or anyone else. He's hunting after God. With every effort, Saul pursued David. David pursued God. The church of Jesus Christ will always be hunted down. It'll always be hated. It'll always be persecuted. It'll always be lied about and blasphemed and sought to be killed, but we will all the more pursue God. We will all the more not retaliate or defend. We will hunt after God. We will be greedy for God. We will go hard after God. We will be in love with and fully addicted to, delighting in, saturated in, and eagerly enthralled in our living God. We will seek his obedience by his word for in obeying there is a joy there's a satisfaction and a peace that no other pursuit could ever supply there's a warning here in Saul's actions look at verse 5 Saul is deathly afraid of the army of the Philistines amassing against him and Israel he's terrified he blames God for turning from him he blames David for taking all the glory he blames his son Jonathan for conspiring with the enemy and and blames Samuel for dying Look at verse 6. Saul heard nothing from God, not by dreams nor by Urim. You remember that? That's the ephod worn by the priest, all the priests that Saul killed. It was a means of grace for the people of God. Saul has no one to wear the ephod, and he doesn't even have possession of it. Nor by the prophets. He killed off all the prophets. He grieved the Spirit of God, and so no dreams or visions come to Saul, as we're told in the Scriptures, come when the Spirit of God is sought and pursued and we hear his voice he cared nothing for the priestly work he cared nothing for the prophetic voice he carried nothing for carrying out the word of God and the means at that time by way by the way the word of God came to kings he treated it lightly he disobeyed it brazenly He despised it deeply so God withdrew intimate conversation from Saul God will withdraw himself from any person who says, I utterly deny and reject you. I utterly turn from you and have no interest in you. In saying such denial, they show they were never his in the beginning. Look at verse 7. Saul was so doubtful of the goodness of God's command to forbid mediums. He knew about it in Deuteronomy 18. In fact, he carries it out. He makes the same command to Israel. He rooted out all the mediums and necromancers and diviners in Israel. He made a law. But he was so unconvinced of the preciousness of the word of God and the removal of all counterfeits of death to it, He broke his own law. He says to his associates, find a medium for me. Even after he made mediums against the law. 
Verse 8, Saul disguises himself, which of course tells us plainly what? He's walking in hypocrisy. Disguise himself. He goes to Endor, a place finding a functioning witch, a medium, a woman who purports to speak to the dead. It's important that you know and that you see that these two attendants with Saul came to this woman by night, both to hide their coming, but also to reveal how benighted and dark Saul's soul is. Saul tells her to call up a spirit, divine a spirit of his choosing. Look at the the hypocrisy. Look at the the evil that Saul is enacting. He's he's dressed with a masquerade, a a mask, a a disguise on. It's nighttime. There's a seance. There's a woman whose evil acts have been made against the law according to God's word and according to Saul's decree. And yet he's asking her to do the very thing he said was against God's law. It's so dark, it's so twisted, it's so perverse, it's even hard to read. She doesn't know who he is. Isn't that stunning? She just can't be that smart of a medium. The king shows up, he's disguised, asks her to divine up someone for him, and she says, yeah, sure, who do you want? She's not able to tell much truth at all. Verse 10, Saul swears by the name of Yahweh, the Lord of life, the covenant Lord of Israel, that no punishment will come to her. She's afraid. She thinks she's being trapped. She says, I don't want to call up any spirit because the king made it against the law. What, are you trying to get me killed? And Saul goes deeper still. In verse 10, he takes an oath and he uses the precious covenantal name of Yahweh. The Lord. He summons the name and the presence of the Lord by his oath, saying to her, you will not be punished for the wrong that you are doing. He has no right to undo the promise of God to punish sin. Sin will be punished either by an eternity in hell or by the blood of Jesus Christ. But worse, Saul doesn't seem to realize that you can't blaspheme against the very God that you're trying to call up a prophet to listen to. You can't blaspheme the very God whom you are seeking through a prophet. She asks, what do you want? He says, bring up Samuel for me. And the spirit of Samuel, in a vision, rises out of the ground and the woman shrieks. Apparently she has never seen this work before. Apparently she has no clue or ability to bring people up from the dead. She's just got tricks. Because she shrieks with unbelief when God ordains that a spirit of the dead rise out of the ground and be recognizable as Samuel. She's a fraud. That's what her shriek means. She immediately recognizes Samuel the prophet, but Saul can't see him, benighted and blind as he is. Saul says, Or she says to Saul, you deceive me, you're Saul. She's getting it now. She realizes only Saul would need to call up the dead Samuel's spirit for prophecy. Saul says, do not be afraid. But of course, she should be terrified. She's acting against God. Lightning bolt's going to come right down in a second on this little seance thing they're doing. She should be terrified. Everybody should be terrified when they're talking to the dead. Believers should never have anything to do with it. 
He says, don't be afraid. But he's leading her and enable, to enable and conspire with him in his sinful plan to disobey God. What do you see, Saul says to her. She says, I see a God coming up from the earth. That's the only thing a pagan woman can call this spirit. He's no God. Pagans had no other word or understanding for what she was seeing. She tells him she sees an old man in a robe. Samuel was old and he always wore the robes that his mother, Hannah, had had woven for him. Saul knew it immediately. It was the spirit of Samuel. And indeed, it was the spirit of Samuel. So Saul bows. His heart is stiff and hardened against the Lord and brazen, but his outward posture is to bow before a dead human spirit. If anyone refuses to worship the living God, worship of the dead is the only other option. There's no middle ground. Here's what distinguishes all other religions from biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is not a smorgasbord option amongst all the other religions. All the other religions, all of them by definition, talk to dead people. We talk to the living God. And we're the only ones who do. So how do you prepare now for the day when the enemy is at the door, your fear and terror is rising? When you feel overwhelmed by the possibility of war, the economy is crumbling, you are scared and trembling to the core of your being, there's a visceral fear that has gripped you, and you are tempted to go back on decisions and convictions and stands of faithfulness and godliness that you've made in the past just to try to finagle a deal with the devil and just get some word of encouragement because it seems like everything's going to collapse down upon you and you're just hoping for one good word of encouragement. So can't I just wink at the devil for one night and get something from him and then I'll be okay. Saul doesn't have visions and dreams where God speaks. He has no priest and no ephod. He has no prophet. He's killed them all. Who has all those right now? David does. (laughs) David's got a prophet named Gad. David's got a priest named Ahimelech who's got the ephod with the Urim and the Thummim. And that's how grace is communicated to David and to his 600 people and their families. And David's got these sweet, intimate Nights on his bed with the Lord where he writes these psalms that we have collected for us in the psalmist. David's got all the things that godly kings and leaders and people of God should have. Saul has none of it because he's pushed it all away for 40 years. How do you prepare your children? How do you prepare your spouse? How do you prepare your church pastor? How do you prepare elders and deacons? How do you prepare for the time when the bombs are out there and the threat is at our door and the temptation to compromise and make deals with the devil are inside our own hearts? We prepare by daily and regularly hearing from God in the word of God. And obeying God with a hunt after him that obeys in every small thing so that when the big obediences come, we are ready to obey. You you access every Sunday school. You access every sermon. You access every Bible passage and every opportunity to dig into spiritual gifts of teaching and every opportunity to exercise your spiritual muscles in ministry and you exercise prayer and worship and you exercise 
art of every sort and kind that magnifies the glory in God of God that you see coming to you moment by moment, day by day in the scriptures. Imagine what it's like to be over in Ziklag. How often do you think David looks over at Gad and say, heard anything lately? How often does he go nod his head over at Ahimelech and say, is that ephod working? What are we hearing from God? How often do those two and the other 600 look to David and say, God knew Psalm last night? Almost all the time. As, as much as Hawaiian surfers check the waves, as often as Minnesotans talk about the weather, David, Gad, Ahimelech, and believers are always saying, so what God's saying to you today? That's how you get ready for the next Putin. If you're hearing daily from the Lord, if you're walking with the living God and in conversation with him, if his word is dwelling in you richly, like the Apostle Paul says, then you have no need to talk to the dead. Don't talk to dead people. It doesn't matter how great a, a works they did when they were alive. It doesn't matter how you were related to them. It doesn't matter how clever the game is to see if you can talk to them. It isn't a hoax talking to dead people. It works. It's just evil and God abominates it. Don't traffic in death. Don't lean on pagan lies which stem from death and produce death. Trust in God. Trust in God alone. Let yourself be a follower of the living God and yourself be living and say, I have no need ever to talk to dead people. Love his word. Pass it on. Awaken sturdy, durable, ballast-supplying, life-giving, zealous love for God's word in your children and grandchildren, your parents, your friends, your spouse, your, friend, your co-workers, roommates, and everyone who will hear. Invest in every good, solid, Bible-based Christian ministry and school. Make your children and the word of God the centerpiece of your life at home. Paint the word of God on your walls, your bedroom walls, and wherever else you dare. Access every spiritual gift of teaching, God's appointed teachers. Learn, memorize, sing, cherish, and live God's word at all costs. Not only for today, but for the days to come. There's a severe warning. Don't be like Saul. Here's the mercy wrapped up inside of it. No medium has the power to raise the dead. No king, no chant, no seance, no mystical tricks. No one has the power to raise the dead but God. God was the one who raised Samuel from the dead as an act of mercy to Saul. He had withdrawn himself from Saul. But in stunning mercy, he raises Samuel in recognizable form for Saul to see. Just like when Jesus is transfigured and Moses and Elijah are standing beside him and recognized by Peter and John, even though there was no uh, photographs in that day, or Facebook or Google, or phones with pictures on them. So the woman knew it was Samuel, and Saul knew it was Samuel, as a mercy. God has the power to raise the dead. He's the God of the living. You're dead, Saul. You're consulting those who consult to the dead. You're causing death to awaken in that woman. 
You're tripping her up and you are causing your two attendants to be confused and you yourself are diving deeper into debt, into the things of death. You will even blaspheme my own name to try to get her to get to the dead like you want. At this 11th hour, Saul, will you repent? At this last moment, will you repent, Saul? How patient and merciful is God that he was willing, even though he had withdrawn his word from Saul, to allow Saul's prophet, mentor, and judge, Samuel, to arise. The second severe mercy is found in verses 15 and following. Cherish God by holding firm to the end your confidence in his word. Cherish God by holding firm to the end your confidence in his word. After Saul and the witch raised Samuel, now a conversation with Saul and Samuel reveals the faithfulness, the rock-solid, unending faithfulness of God's word, worthy of our confidence, unending. This conversation between Samuel and Saul is one of the most important conversations in the book of 1 Samuel. It's why I say it's that twin tower spanning the bridge of the whole book. Look at what Samuel says. It's, I, I, I'm just wondering if he was like yawning when he said this. Stretching, you know. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Talking to the dead is not evil because it's a hoax. It's evil because it works and God abominates it. Saul's answer, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me. Just what a victim Saul is. Look how he plays the victim. I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more. Either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. It makes so much sense to Saul. It makes so much sense in your life if you can look at the difficulties that you have and just blame God for it all. God was the one who turned away from me and was not there at the time I needed him. It's God's fault. I'm going to betray and blame and accuse God. Saul never more sounded like Satan than when he said this sentence. What sounds so reasonable to the person who has denied God is ultimately evil and accusation and blasphemy against God. Look at Saul's, uh, Samuel's answer, verse 16. Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Seven times in that statement, Samuel says, the Lord is doing all this because he's planning all this. This is his doing. And you should notice that this paragraph of bold statement where Samuel's talking about what the Lord is doing proves this is not a demon parading as Samuel, as so many think. This is actually Samuel talking, and what confirms that is he'd already said all these things before. He's restating exactly what he already said to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Going to the dead and asking them for information that you already get from God never gets you any new information. They can't create anything. 
All they can do is pervert the good that God has said. This is surely Samuel speaking. And he's reminding Saul of exactly what Saul should have remembered and known all along had he regarded the word of God as worthy of his confidence and faithful and true. Oh, how easy it is to forget what we've learned in the Bible. How easy it is to learn wonderful, glorious things in God's word and then to live as if they're not true anymore because we've forgotten them. How worthy of our confidence to the end is the word of God. How worthy of our confidence to the end is all that God has said. Everything he proclaimed in the Bible will and is coming to pass. Nothing will be left undone. There's a severe warning to Saul here. You're going to die. It's nighttime, remember. Tomorrow, the battle begins. Philistines come against Israel. You, Saul, and your two sons are going to die. What a mercy embedded in that warning. You've got hours, Saul, hours. Look at your sons. Look at your family. Take a deep breath in your lungs. Look around you. Look at... Everything the Lord has given to you mercifully and graciously, is not this worth preserving? And and what sin do you cherish in your heart that's better to you than all the infinite blessings of knowing God for eternity? At this 11th hour, Saul, will you repent? I, Samuel, have risen from the dead by the power of God to tell you everything God had already said to you is true. Remember everything he said. Hold fast your confidence and remember that it all comes to pass. You've got mere hours before the battle begins. Will you repent, Saul, at this 11th hour? It doesn't take a day. It doesn't take an hour. It takes one flash of a moment. God, I repent. God, I was wrong. I've lived my whole life against you. I have trusted myself and my own flesh and my own glory. The writer of Hebrews says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Hebrews 3.13 If you hear the voice of God right now in your life, you are under his mercy. If if you can hear God speaking to you through this broken man, Saul, and 1 Samuel 28, and the foolishness of my preaching, if you can hear the voice of God say to you, I want to quickly repent because just like Saul, all I've got is now. I do not have the capacity to stop a war from attacking me tomorrow. I do not have the capacity to preserve and guarantee for myself or my family tonight or the drive home or the end of this sentence. The warning here, the second warning, this strong warning is you and your two sons are going to die. They're going to be with me in Sheol awaiting the judgment. This is what made me think about the Mackinac Bridge and these two towers. Here's, here's Samuel. 
little Samuel, sleeping, hearing the voice of the Lord. He finally knows it's God, and God says, you know what, young man? you got to go to the old man, Eli, and you have to tell him he and his two sons are going to die. You're my prophet. That's your first job. Here's Samuel, sleeping, <laughs> dead. <laughs> you got to come back to life, Samuel. One more job. you got to go to Saul and tell him he and his two sons are going to die. That's why I thought of those two mighty twin spires holding up the bridge of 1 Samuel. I love the way God writes his Bible. Then I said there's a hope with which we end and turn to the table. Rare in this chapter are two phrases that come out of the mouth of God. They're quoted here in this paragraph by Samuel. Samuel's explanation of everything he'd already said to Saul. Rare is it that they're together and rare is it that God ever says them. In fact, almost all the interpreters I came across showed me and said, and I'm convinced it true, that there's really only one other place where God says, both at the same time, I'm going to turn away from you and I'm going to hand you over to your enemies. When God says that, it's so rare. Sometimes he says one, sometimes he says the other. In the Old Testament, God says here, I'm going to hand you over to your enemies and I'm turning away from you. Those two things in the same paragraph through the voice of Samuel. And, and it's also important to notice that the very last paragraph of 1 Samuel 28, there's, there's a meal. Saul is finally talked into eating a meal with his two friends. And it's nighttime. In fact, the chapter tells us three times that it was nighttime. Oh yeah, it's nighttime. There's only one other place that careful biblical readers let their mind leap to when they think about nighttime and a meal. And God ordaining that there be a handing over, a betrayal, and God turning himself away from someone. You're thinking of it, and I am too. This looks just like Judas. Judas handed over for 30 pieces of silver Jesus to the Pharisees. Judas did all his work at night, according to John 13. Judas had a last supper with Jesus. Judas, Judas made a deal with the devil. God withdrew from Judas, same as he's done from Saul. But here's why I think it's worth mentioning before we come to the table. This is breathtaking. It's hard for me to describe. We have a Savior who hangs on the cross. And he says, I know what Judas has done. And I know what Saul has done. And I know what you've done. And I. And he says, in full willingness... I'm going to hang on the cross and allow my father to tear my kingdom from me. It's like God tore the kingdom from Saul. 
And I'm going to be regarded as an accuser and a betrayer of God. I'm going to hang on the cross under the identity of a Saul. I'm going to own everything Saul did to deny God. I'm going to own what Judas did to deny God. I'm going to pay for the sins of the world, being the Lamb of God. Will you trust him? Will you receive him? He who knew no sin but became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him? The Lord treated Christ like he was Saul so that you and I, Saul's that we are, could be loved like David. No, not just like David, but like the son of David, Christ himself. There is a mysterious and glorious mercy in Christ giving his body to be broken, his blood to be poured out on behalf of sinners, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Saul, you've got hours before the sun comes up and the battle begins. Will you repent at the 11th hour? There is mercy in a day. There's mercy in a few hours. There's mercy in a moment. We have nothing more guaranteed to us today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for 1 Samuel 28 and I thank you for the glories of the gospel that are embedded there. I thank you for the opportunity that we have as believers to see Christ, as it were, taking Saul's place and Judas's place and ours. There's no sinner too far from Christ's reach. There's no sinner whose sin is too great that his blood sacrifice cannot cover and wash it away. We revel in the glory of the gospel, even in its mystery beyond our understanding. And we celebrate it now, we believers here at this table, by the body represented by this bread and by his blood represented by this cup. I pray, Father, that you would cause us to delight in hearing from and speaking to and cherishing the word of the living God who reminds us over and over and over again, the greatest thing in all the world is to be saved because you are saved by me. Lord, would you make the landing a church that cherishes your word now and in every difficult day to come? Would you make me a man and my family a family who cherishes you and your word now and in every difficult day to come? We know that while difficulty may last for a moment, there will be joy in the morning. You promised it. You said in this world you will have trouble. But do not be anxious. But be very cheerful and encouraged, for I have overcome the world. We gather ourselves now to this table, celebrating you as our great world-overcoming, sin-overcoming Savior. And we worship you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.